You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everyone. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to yet another edition of City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that follows in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area, from where we continue to feature the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the spring season. I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge those who came before us as stewards of the land and offer our respects. As many of you know, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. Our publishing program includes new work in the areas of poetry, literature and translation, and nonfiction with a progressive political outlook. It is especially meaningful to us when we are able to celebrate the launch of one of our own books. And today's event is just such an occasion. We are thrilled to have with us Masab Abu Toha. He'll be in conversation with Mary Carr, and we are celebrating the publication of Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, Poems from Gaza. In this poetry debut, Mosab Abu Taha writes about his life under siege in Gaza, first as a child, then as a young father, a survivor of four very brutal military attacks. He bears witness to a grinding cycle of destruction and assault, and yet his poetry is inspired by a very profound humanity. His poems emerge directly from the experience of growing up and living in a state of constant lockdown. Masab Abutoha is a Palestinian poet, scholar, and librarian who was born in Gaza and has spent his life there. He has taught English at the United Nations Relief and Works Agency schools in Gaza from 2016 until 2019. And he's the founder of the Edward Said Library, Gaza's first English language library. In 2019 through 2020, he was visiting poet in the Department of Comparative Literature at Harvard University, a visiting librarian at Harvard's Houghton Library, and a Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative Fellow in the Harvard Divinity School. He has given readings and talks at universities around the country. Mr. Abutoha is a columnist for Aerosmith Press, and his writings from Gaza have appeared in The Nation, Aerosmith Press, and LitHub. His poetry has been published on the Poetry Foundation's website in Poetry Magazine, also in Bonnie Paul, Solstice, The Marquez Review, The New Arab, amongst other journals. So joining him today in conversation is Mary Carr, the award-winning poet, best-selling memoirist. She's the author of the critically acclaimed and New York Times best-selling memoirs, The Liars Club, also Cherry and Lit, as well as The Art of Memoir. She is the author of five poetry collections, most recently Tropic of Squalor. She is also a songwriter, having collaborated with such artists as Nora Jones, Lucinda Williams, and others. So today's event is being brought to us in conjunction with Middle Eastern Children's Alliance and the Marquez Review. The Middle Eastern Children's Alliance is a nonprofit organization working for the rights and well-being of children in the Middle East. They support dozens of community projects for Palestinian children and refugees from Syria. Since 1988, the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance has delivered over $29 million in food and medical aid to Palestinian, Iraqi, and Lebanese children. So the Marcaz Review is a literary arts publication and cultural institution that curates content and programs on the greater Middle East and in their communities and the diaspora. The Marcaz signifies the concept of the center in Arabic, as well as in Persian, Turkish, Hebrew and Urdu. So such a great honor to have you both with us for this special occasion. Mosab Abu Doha, Mary Carr, thank you for gracing our virtual halls and a very warm welcome to you both. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction and thank you guys for joining us today. I'm, I'm so thrilled to see this book come to fruition. I met Mosab uh, two years ago now, when he became left Harvard's uh, comp lit department, which is one of the most prestigious sort of literary hothouses on the planet, if you ask me, it's it's some place I would never have uh, been able to 
finagle my way into. And Mossab, to have a poet of, of Mossab Abu Toha's quality land in my classroom as a student when he was teaching at Harvard the year before was daunting. What struck me, though, about Mossab from the moment I met him was his humor, his grace, a kind of spiritual grounding that was bemused and yet very clear-eyed and his passion for language and for literature. Uh, he, we've had a sort of semi-disaster here um, in the past couple of years because Mossab, uh, going back from, to visit Gaza where he has ailing older parents, um, he became stuck because he uh, is a stateless individual. He, there is no embassy in Gaza. And um, all of, of our finagling and lever pulling and begging and bribing and borrowing and chiding and pleading, he's still stuck. And even though uh, we expect him, I think we finally got him an interview at the Jerusalem Embassy. For those of you who don't know, this is common if you don't have an, an embassy, a state, uh, a recognized state that uh, can advocate for you. So. Um, Really, I'm here to celebrate not his travails, but him as a human being, as a father, and most importantly, as an extraordinary new voice in the poetry of witness. His poems have a quality of curiosity, a vivid landscape, a vivid set of images, and a very, uh, I like the word humanity, a very humane point of view, a very situated point of view and of uh, lived experience. To me, the great poets, he, he has a poem dedicated to the great Mahmud Darwish. The great poets have binocular vis vision, are able to see two ways. Mossab may be able to see 10 or 12 ways, I guess. And, and so I'm going to ask him to join us uh, by reading some of the poems in this extraordinary book, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear. Please welcome Mossab well, Abu Toha. Thank you, dear Mary. Uh, it's so fascinating um, to be part of this event. And thank you for the warm welcome, uh, Mary. Uh, you said uh, maybe more than I deserve. Um, well, I, I'm going to start with the first poem in the collection titled uh, Palestine AZ. Yeah. Um, so I tracked down all the alphabet in the English language and gave two words and what they mean to me in English. A, an apple that fell from the table on a dark evening when man-made lightning flashed through the kitchen, the streets and the sky, rattling the cupboards and breaking the dishes. M is the linger that follows present tense, I am no longer present when I chattered. B, a book that doesn't mention my language or my country and has maps of every place except for birthplace, as if I were an illegitimate child on Mother Earth. Borders are those invented lines drawn on with ash on maps and soon with the ground, onto the ground by bullets. See, Gaza is a city where tourists gather to take photos next to destroyed buildings or graveyards. A country that exists only in my mind. Its flag has no room to fly freely, but there is a space on the coffins of my countrymen. D, Dar means house. My grandparents left their house behind in 1948 near Yaffa. A tree my father told me about stood in the front yard. Dreams of children and their parents, of listening to songs or watching plays at Al-Mishal Cultural Center. Israel destroyed it in August 2018. I hate August, but plays are still performed in Gaza. Gaza is the stage. And then moving to the Second poem, 
uh, on my list today, which is my grandfather was a terrorist. If you have the, the book, it's on page 13. My grandfather was a terrorist. He tended to his field, watered the roses in the courtyard, smoked cigarettes with the grandmother on the yellow beach, lying there like a prayer rug. My grandfather was a terrorist. He picked oranges and lemons, went fishing with brothers until noon, sang a comforting song en route to the farriers with his piebald horse. My grandfather was a terrorist. He made a cup of tea with milk, sat on his verdant land as soft as silk. My grandfather was a terrorist. He departed his house, leaving it for the coming guests, left some water on the table, his best, lest the guests die of thirst after their conquest. My grandfather was a terrorist. He walked to the closest to the, clo to the closest safe the empty as the sky, and as a descent, dark as a starless night. My grandfather was terrorist. My grandfather was a man, a breadwinner for 10, whose luxury was to have a tent with a blue UN flag set on the rusting pole, each next to a cemetery. Another poem dedicated to my grandfather. My grandfather and home. One. My grandfather used to count the days for return with us. He used the stones to count. Not enough. He used the clouds, birds, people. Absence turned out to be too long. 36 years until he died. For us now, it is over 70 years. My grandpa lost his memory. He forgot the numbers, the people. He forgot home. Two, I wish I were with you, grandpa. I would have taught myself to write you poems, volumes of them, and paint our home for you. I would have to soil a garment decorated with plants and the trees you had grown. I would have made you perfume from oranges and soap from the sky's tears of joy. Couldn't think of something purer. Three, I go to the cemetery every day for your grave, but in vain. Are they sure they buried you? Or did you turn into a tree? Or perhaps you flew off with a bird to the nowhere. Four, I place your photo in an earthenware pot. I water it every Monday and Thursday at sunset. I was told you used to fast those days. On Ramadan, I water it every day for 30 days or less more. Five, how big do your home to be? I can continue to write poems until you are satisfied. If you wish, I can annex a neighboring planet or two. Six, for home, I shall not draw boundaries. No punctuation marks. Mossad, thank you so much. One of the things, there's a great line in a, a letter of John Keats that um, if poetry doesn't come to the poet as naturally as leaves to a tree, they ought not come at all. And uh, one of the things I find so impressive about this work um, is your use of metaphor. And the metaphors are very specific, very grounded in the physical world and yet they evoke and mean in several ways. Just one of these lines I'm so struck by, borders are those invented lines drawn with ash on maps and sewn into the ground by bullets. Just the conflation of all those things together, invented lines drawn with ash on maps. Do you remember what exactly how that line was arrived at, or can you talk a little bit at all about your use of metaphor? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, the the borders that are now set up between countries uh, were never made except after 
people started fighting together. Uh, they wanted to get as much land as they could from other people. So they want to enlarge, to enlarge their, their, their countries by way of force, by way of imperialism. So those borders, it's a true they are uh, drawn by ink uh, or printed uh, on paper, but in fact, they are not drawn with ink or or on, printed on computers, but they are they are drawn with the blood of the people from from whom the land the lands were taken. So I mean, this is maybe the the best way I could imagine uh, to understand how how we have uh, countries in this world, especially those who were built after massacres and and the kill of the indigenous population, whether uh, in the east or the west. Can you talk about what in your reading and um, your study, either when you were a child in Gaza or, or at Harvard in the Complit Department or at Syracuse, can you talk at all about what drew you to poetry, to, the, to language, um, how you, you could have been many different things. You could have been a professor, you're a, you founded a, a library. Uh, in a place where there are no libraries for for children, you um, you're, you've obviously been drawn to language all your life. So, what was everybody was everybody in your family that way? Were you the weirdo? Were you the weird guy um, who had this passion for language? And when did you start to really hone it into poetry? I'm I'm not sure if my connection is very good. Can you confirm? You heard you heard me very well. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, in fact, I think poetry uh, is maybe the only way for me uh, to express myself as a human being, uh, someone who was born uh, uh, under siege, under occupation. Um, sometimes I find, I find poetry an effective way to get rid of my nightmares uh, that, that usually come to me in my sleep. So when I give my pen, uh, it's a freedom to write. It sometimes shows me um, what this, where this idea came from. So it's, it's like digging, it's like excavating my subconscious. Am I freezing? Yeah, shit, but you're back. Okay, okay, let me just change my position. One of the other difficulties Mossab faces in Gaza is lack of consistent electricity and lack of consistent Wi-Fi. So uh, you'll have to forgive me if I uh, if I fill in while he moves from one place to another. Uh, again, I, I see these poems as being especially relevant now with what's going on in Ukraine. We see the carnage, we see the violence. Um, a lot of what goes on in Gaza, I think we don't we don't see, we aren't allowed to see, or we haven't been allowed to see. Um, I'm hoping when he comes back, he will. Uh, yeah, you know, it looks like he's uh, been bumped off the room. He's fallen. He's so, fallen into a hole. Well, yeah, I, let's I was, let's okay. see if we can get him back in. I'll, I'll work on that. Okay. Um, at one point, um, I'm hoping he'll tell this story when he comes back. Uh, it was a year ago today that um, uh, that there were bombings there in Gaza, and uh, he sent me a video of he, he has three, a wife Maram and three beautiful children, whom I got to know a little bit in Syracuse, and and uh, we we zoomed together. And I'm hoping he can talk a little bit about what those bombs were like, particularly for his daughter, Yafa. I was able to see something. I didn't really understand, uh, in a way, what was going on, I think, un until uh, Mossab and I became friends and such close friends. Is Hi, Mary. There you are. Are you back? <laughs> He's back. Yeah, I'm back. Very good. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm in a different apartment because it seems like my internet is just so bad. 
<laughs> this seems okay, better. I, I, was, I was hoping you could tell the story about Yaffa and, and her brother bringing her the blanket. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, uh, we traveled to the States uh, in 2019 and we spent about, about uh, 15 months and we returned to Gaza uh, early 2001. So just one about 100 days after we reached we reached Gaza, uh, the Israelis uh, uh, war plane, the Israeli war plane and tanks started to attack Gaza. So it was it it was comparatively a new experience for the kids uh, to hear bombing, to hear the F-16 and F-35 bombing Gaza at night and during the day. Whereas before that, in in America, it was so calm. So calm. I mean, there was no noise, and when they, when they could hear the, uh, the motor of, a plane, it was a, tra a traveling, a passenger uh, airplane. It was not a, uh, uh, an air, an, uh, a war plane. You know, so it was it was terrifying for the kids. Uh, to be in Gaza again, uh, my son started to tell me we want to go back to America. Um, uh, so during the night there was heavy shelling uh, one day last, last something like today last year it, there was heavy bombing uh, at during the night and it's really strange that the, the israeli army prefers to attack gaza especially during the night when kids are trying to sleep so yafa want want yafa my, now she is 5 years old uh, she she tried to cover herself she wanted to hide so my son, Yazan, who is one year older than her, uh, brought, uh, fetched a, a, blank a blanket and threw it uh, at her. And he said, no, now you, you are hiding. So as if closing your eyes would prevent danger from coming to you. That's a really innocent uh, thought, you know. Um, so, you know, a big brother trying to, to help his sister and me, a father, I cannot I cannot protect either of them, and I, I can I, I cannot even uh, you know secure myself and my family in Gaza. So it was really you know nightmarish. Uh, it was really heartbreaking to see children uh, who have who who even do not know that they are in Gaza. They do not know what Gaza is. Just like me as a child, I never knew that I was born under an in an occupied country until I grew up and was wounded in, two, in, in 2008. Can you describe that for us? Yeah, it was uh, in 2008. Um, there How was, old were you? I was 16 when I was wounded. And there is a, maybe a very long poem in the collection that uh, details uh, this, uh, you know, the wounds that are still, that still have marks uh, on my body. You said you said once um, uh, again. I, I've I've come to realize fully, or not fully. I've I've come to get a just a the tiniest glimpse of what it means to be stateless. And you said something today. I wanted to ask you about. You said, "I am stateless inside and outside." <laughs> right. Help me understand <laughs> what, what that means. Yeah, well, it's it's a strange feeling because even while you are in Gaza, you don't know uh, to what you belong. I mean, okay, there is a homeland in my mind, but you know, when I go around here and there, I don't know what is this state that we are calling Palestine, because you know there is a political rift between the two parts uh, of Palestine, Gaza and the West Bank. And for me, as a Gazan, I cannot go to the West Bank. And people in the West Bank, which is a Palestinian territory, cannot come to Gaza. So we are separated ge geographically and politically. So I'm stateless. I cannot even visit the other part of my country. Not to say, you know, uh, my home, my, my grandfather's uh, city, which is Yaffa. And when, I, when I'm outside Palestine, uh, when I show my passport to some maybe Arab countries, uh, or even European countries, they, okay, Palestine, we are going to look it up. Uh, they, they usually maybe don't find it. They just see the Gaza Strip. So uh, when I applied for the, my visa uh, before I went to Harvard, 
there was no Palestine in my J1 form, the visa form. It was either the Gaza Strip or the West Bank. And the other part of it is that because I'm from Gaza, leaving Gaza is nearly impossible and returning to it is also impossible. That's because of the uh, continuous uh, crossing border closure. Uh, because, you know, we Palestinians do not uh, control uh, either of the two uh, border crossing, one between Gaza and Egypt and the other between Gaza and Israel. So we are trapped inside and outside. But is does that also refer to being trapped inside your body, inside your heart, inside your memory or or no? Yeah, yeah it's, you know, it's a, per, a perplexing uh, feeling because, again, I don't know whether I should stay in, in Gaza or not. Maybe sometimes I'm thinking about my kids, about the horror that we are subjected to. So there is a conflict between, should I stay? Is it, is it worthy of staying here? Maybe I should return a few years later because I need to keep my children safe. So I don't want to leave forever, but sometimes I think that Maybe I need to, to, have, to have some time outside. I need my children to grow up uh, psychologically and physically healthy. Um, so, you know, I mean, you are trapped, whether physically or mentally or psychologically. Yeah. And, and what do you think? You've, I love these poems about your grandfather. Can you tell us a little bit about him and what, what he, how he grew up and you... Mm. you I find those poems particularly moving. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, my, my, my grandfather passed away before my father married. So, <laughs> so I never had the chance of meeting him or talking to him. So to me, he is something that will be absent forever. Uh, so I look at him and consider him to be my Palestine, something that I lost even before seeing it. So for me, I know Palestine, I know Yaffa, I hear about Jerusalem, I hear about Akka, I hear about uh, Nazareth and Nasra. So I know about these places, but I never set my foot in them. So that's the same uh, with my grandfather. I just see him in, in photos. I try to create stories about him from the stories that my father tell me about him. And one other thing, I don't know where his grave is. Oh, <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Terrible. I, I think of uh, I think of that situation in Ukraine. Uh, um, I also there's a lot of joy in this book that the, even though you're you're living under siege, um, we I was hoping you could read on page 49 if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me so much of some of the great Polish poets um, who wrote under various occupations. That poem, We Love What We Have, on page 49. Would you mind reading that for me? Sure. Yeah, okay. Of course. Um, we love what we have. We love what we have, no matter how little. Because if we don't, everything will be gone. If we don't, we will no longer exist since there will be nothing for us here. What's here is something that we are still building. It's something we cannot yet see because we are part of it. Someday soon, this building will stand on its own while we will be the trees that protect it from the fierce wind, the trees that will give shade to children sleeping inside or playing on swings. Wow. How that image of the that the way the juxtaposition in the poem, uh, we will be the trees that protect it from the fierce wind, the trees that will give shade to children sleeping inside or playing on swings. Yeah. How much of your decision to build that library, could you talk a little bit about that? And um, was that the result that happened when Maram was pregnant with your oldest son, right? Not Mustafa. <laughs> Yeah. You mean establishing the library in 2017? Yes, establishing yeah. the library. That's something I don't know if he can can post a link to that library, but it's it's one of my favorite um 
It's one of my favorite charities, so. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my, my wife gave birth to Yafa, our second child. Um, and I was doing some interviews to promote the library. <laughs> so I didn't attend my, my, my second baby's, uh, you know, uh, birth. Um, so, I mean, in, in the poem, when I talk about the trees, uh, surely we are, we, are, we are going to be buried when we die, but we are not dying completely because we will be still growing up and giving our children with what we are building for them now. So we will protect them. We will give them the shade if, even after we die. So that's something that I want, especially for the library and other, other projects that I might be able to succeed in uh, starting. I want things that, that will help people to continue reading and writing, continue to growing up culturally, uh, socially, I want them to connect with each other because because this is this is how we uh, discover our own uh, humanity, whether our faults or success. Um, maybe this this is one of the most important things about uh, being a tree that gives shade to children. And was it reading? Were you always interested in reading? Obviously, you read many languages. Ob you were always interested in literature and, or poetry in English? Or, or I know you read many languages, but can you talk a little bit about what you've read that's brought you to this juncture? I feel like you're in a lineage that is certainly, uh, you know, from the Middle East, but I also, I mean, you wrote this book in English, yeah. which is what's so, something so, it's an impressive accomplishment. Well, my, my relation uh, with English uh, started when I was in my fifth grade. That's uh, when English was taught as, uh, as, a la as, as one of the subjects in my school. So I think until now, it's, uh, it's, it has been my favorite subject in school. Uh, sometimes I've been active in class more than during uh, the Arabic classroom, uh, you know. So it developed with me until I uh, entered, uh, started my college uh, year. I, I majored in English, uh, but during that time, I never tried to, to write anything creative. I just studied, you know, poetry and novels, plays, etc. But I, I haven't started to write until 2014 uh, during uh, the Israeli <laughs> during the Israeli wow. attack on Gaza. So on my Facebook, I started to, uh, to post what is happening around me. So that work lasted for about 50 days and I lost the three of my close friends and our house was uh, partially uh, destroyed uh, or damaged. Um, so so many of my friends online uh, try, uh, started to reflect and and comment on what I'm writing. So that gave me, I think, a reason to continue writing because I never thought that what I'm writing is, is appealing to others or it could change other people's feelings toward uh, me and my, my family and my friends. Um, so that, that's how I started to use my English creatively because you know I studied English just that's just for communication uh, for academic purposes for for my work but I started using it as um, I adopted it as my creative language and I also write in Arabic but I think uh, my poems differ when I write in Arabic than when I write in English I'm hoping you can read some more poems for us so many of these, I, I'm really excited that to hear you read more from this this second group of poems. Yeah. And if you if you'll say the I'll, if you uh, if you'll say the pages of them too, in case people have the book, it's such a great book. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, I want to read uh, Silence of Water. That's on page fifty five. Silence of water. Father typing on a keyboard. 
mother reading the morning paper aloud to cover the sound of a neighbor's radio, hanging lamp swinging in the breeze from a cracked window, flies losing balance, sometimes. Black and white pictures on walls searching for colors, kettle on stove. One big drop hammers the roof, no lightning, thunder, or clouds. It rains only on this house. Dust and concrete stuff the nostrils of other houses. Water on stove no longer boils. Shrapnel has cut its throat. Such a powerful last line, Mosan. Thank you. Um, uh, I would also read the Edward Said, Naam Chomsky, and Theodore Adorno in Gaza. So that that is based on a real incident. Can you tell us how that came to pass? What a weird lineup. Edward Said, Noam Chomsky, and Adorno in Gaza. How did they come together? And how old were you when you saw this event? Well, that happened two years ago. I was in my room. Um, and there was an explosion just a few hundred meters away from our house. And one of Edward Said's books that's titled Out of the Place, his memoir, his famous memoir. So it fell off the shelf. Um, so I thought that Edward Said was out of place when he was alive. And now after he died, this out of place book is now again out of place. It's really now out of place. Um, and I thought of Noam Chomsky as a friend of Edward Said, trying to help him, uh, you know, stop the the bleeding, etc. And then I thought about the sound and the music of the explosion. And there came Adorno as someone Edward Said uh, admired. So <laughs> that's this is the, uh, the panorama of the poem. Okay, so Edward Said, Noam Chomsky and Theodore Adorno in Gaza. Dust tiptoes in a standing ovation after the explosion. Light hits the icy air, fades into the town's potholes. Edward Said is out of the place again. His books fall from my shelves onto the broken window glass. Palestine is also out of the place. Its map falls off my wall. Edward's exile bleeds again of wars, of continued estrangement. Chomsky, innately repairs the wounded words, applying bandages from his universal grammar kit. Adorno tries to study the music of the falling bomb and shattering a glass, but the words slipping from the books, from the books mystify his sight and mind. The dust covers his glasses. The musical score lies breathless near his shivering feet. Beautiful. Right. Um, maybe one one last poem before we please. Uh, yeah. Okay. Forever homeless, and you know it's traveling as I mentioned is really a painful experience for a Palestinian like me. Um, so I wrote this poem about my my being forever homeless. Before my long travel, I pack my suitcases stuff them with some sand from our land, some scent from my mother's kitchen and sounds of birds in the morning. And in my pockets, I put the four directions. My hands are the compass. At the airport, I beg the officer not to open the suitcases and if needed to touch my clothes gently. Otherwise, I would be standing on nothing, surrounded by nothing see nothing i would be weightless and forever homeless beautiful that just was beautiful. yeah that was on page uh, 98. Will you, will you just read mosab as a last poem that's the one i really wanted to hear you read okay. or no do you mind no i can read it sure yeah Thank i wrote you. it in one of the classes in one of the classes i remember <laughs> yeah mosab my father gave me a difficult name. Inside it said two letters that don't exist in English. 
My father didn't know I would have English speaking friends, always asking how to pronounce my name or trying to, to avoid saying it. But dad, I like to hear others address me by name, especially friends. Even my name's root means difficult. A camel that is described as Mus'ab is one that's difficult to mount and ride. But I'm not difficult in any way. I will undress myself and show you my shoulders, how dust has come to rest on them, my chest, how tears have wet its thin skin, my back, how sweat has made it pale, my belly, how hair has covered my navel, the spot where my mother fed me before birth. The same spot they say the angel of death will pierce to take away my soul. And now at night, my son's head hurts when he rested on my belly. And my clothes, I feel them loose while others see them tight on me. When someone from the life insurance company calls and pronounce my name in English, I see the angel of death in the mirror with eyes that watch me crumbling and onto his foreign ground. Beautiful. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Mosab. I want people to have time to ask you questions, so I'm going to mute my darn self. You guys, don't make me come out there and start asking you like Oprah to ask Mosab questions. So people have begun posting questions in the chat. We have one from Karen Adler. Uh, she says, very, very moving poetry, Masab. Would like to know if you have dialogue with Israeli poets and academics. Well, in fact, that's something maybe not possible. Uh, you know, I've never met an Israeli in my life. Uh, we are, we, I'm not allowed to leave Gaza. Uh, but I think there are some Jewish friends uh, who, who I'm in touch with. Uh, I, share, I share my poems with them and they share my, their poetry with me. And that's something uh, very illuminating and very helpful for me to understand how others uh, are living and how they are thinking. We also have um, another comment and question from Don. The media continues to give extensive coverage of the relentless Russian assault on the Ukraine. Is this a moment when poems like yours might help break through the media blackout of the relentless assault on Gaza and the continuing theft of land by Israel? Well, that's something I hope. Uh, you know, it, it will take a lot of time before people change their way of thinking. I mean, maybe poetry can affect people and how they feel about something, but that's not necessary it doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to change it on the ground. I mean, I, I wrote poetry about death, about siege, about my wounds, but that's not a, you know, a guarantee that this won't happen again. Okay. Um, actually, um, Elaine Katzenberger from City Lights Books, our director has a question. Can you talk about the aspect of humor permeating the book? Well, I think it's the candle that's, light, that's lighting my way ahead, uh, you know, uh, during the blackout in Gaza. I mean, there should be some humor. And I think humor is born out of grief. Maybe that, that's my own experience. Uh, this is how I, th I see things. And maybe this is, you know, this could alleviate the painful feelings that I come across while writing. Uh, Chris uh, thanks you for your work and also asks, what's the poetry scene in Gaza like? Well, I think there are many emerging poets here in Gaza, but the issue is that there is no person who is trying to uh, promote these poets. We lack uh, journal journals. We don't have literary journals here. And the books that the poets here uh, publish they do not leave Gaza because of the siege. And even the other part of the Palestinian territories or the, the state of Palestine, uh, which we now have, uh, the other part of it, which is the West Bank, we cannot get the books that are published there until after a long time. So there is, there is no uh, easiness when it comes to exchanging books 
delivering books from Gaza to the outside world, or the vice, or or the other way around, which is importing books. So, for example, for me, uh, it took me about uh, two months uh, before I got some books from my friends uh, outside Gaza. So that's 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 receiving something from outside. If I'm going to send something from Gaza to the outside world, it will take even longer. So for example, the five copies that Citylights sent to me, uh, although they put Gaza as the destination, uh, I, I got a call from the UPS agent in the West Bank and they communicated with me that the West Bank is the farthest place they could deliver to. They couldn't deliver to Gaza. I need to find someone in the West Bank to collect the books on my behalf and then find a way to give them to me in Gaza. As if I, I know any person in the West Bank. I don't know people from the West Bank and I'm not allowed to, do, to go to the West Bank. So I was separated from my books, but finally I, I found out a way. I called the Minister of Culture uh, in the West Bank and I asked him to keep the books in his, uh, uh, in, his, in, in, in the Minister of Culture, until we could find a, a person in the West Bank who is coming to Gaza, maybe two weeks later or maybe a month later, we don't know. So that's, that's, that's about me. Uh, other young poets, maybe they don't have the chance of publishing their work outside Gaza or uh, in the West or other venues. I have a question from Kevin who asks, how would you describe the difference between your poems written in Arabic and English? Can you say that again, sorry? How would you describe the difference between your poems written in Arabic and then in English? Hmm. I think when I write in English, I mainly think of, think of an English-speaking uh, person, someone from America, from Britain, from Canada, and those countries, you know, uh, are, are usually looked at as oppressors, imperialist countries, especially Britain, because we were uh, under British mandate and the British uh, uh, promised Palestine to the Jews. And now America is the biggest supporter of Israel, militarily, uh, economically, etc. So when I'm, I'm, when I'm, writing about my experience, I'm thinking about them. I want them to hear what I'm, I'm writing. I want them to not just listen to the numbers on TV or in a newspaper, but I want them to go inside with me. I want, to see, I want them to see through my eyes as someone who has been born under uh, occupation and siege, who was wounded, who lost the three friends. Etc. So I want them to be in my place. And I think English is, the only way that I can write in poetry in English, not, not only English, but poetry in English uh, would help me uh, communicate all these uh, ideas and, and experience. Yeah. I love the question of how you keep hope alive because you are a very, you're both resigned and hopeful at the same time. I, 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 how do you do it? I know you're a person of faith, um, but what else? How do you not succumb to despair? Well, I mean, I think it's 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 a reality. So it's either you take out take away your life or you just keep hope. I mean, you are you have two options: whether to continue your life or just end it. So if you decide to continue with your life, you need to have some reason that would make you continue to live and also let other live a good life. So for example, for me, uh, during the war, uh, especially May uh, of last year, I was, you know, I was terrified. I, my, my, my legs were just, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it was really, really frightening. So I had to uh, show people around me, the kids or my neighbors, that I'm strong. No, no, don't worry. It's fine. It, it will go away. Although I was, I was dying inside. So I, it's, it's something for me and it's something for others. I don't want people to think that all of us are terrorized or I'm afraid. No, I, I want to, uh, to act that I'm, no, no, I'm strong. Although I'm not 
that strong in that moment. <laughs> but that's that's none of it to... is. Nobody is. No, you no. Were... When it comes when it comes to F sixteen bombs, you cannot you you know you cannot challenge a bomb. You cannot <laughs> challenge a bullet. No, no. Even though it's really tiny, you cannot just stand in its face. You just have to run away. But the coward person who is hiding maybe in a in a, mili in, in, in a military uh, camp and just seeing us from the sky, from his drone, seeing us in black and white as dots, he thinks he's strong, but he's not. That's right. Beautiful, beautiful Mossad. Thank you so much. This book is such a gift to everybody. I hope everybody here orders it. This is such an amazing book, and I can't say enough about this uh, fabulous mm. debut. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, City Lights, for letting thank us gather you. here to celebrate this. Well, thank you both ever so much. And this has been a great honor and very, very auspicious and meaningful event. Mary Carr, thank you for being such an excellent interviewer. Masab, congratulations. Uh, it's such an honor for City Lights to be able to publish this book, especially at this time. And we really wish you the very best in all things and really look forward to someday having you in the store live. It would be such a wonderful thing. So as much as the virtual has brought us all together, there is no substitute in being in the same room. So we look forward to that. Uh, our gratitude also goes out to our co-sponsors today, the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance and the Marcaz Review. I've actually posted links in the chat function with which you may you know, do more research and visit their sites and learn more about their good work. Uh, also posted links with which you may buy the book, so please check that out. Also want to remind everyone, you know, City Lights is actually open for business now. We're open from 12 noon until 8 p.m. every day, so please come on down, visit our stacks. We would love to see you. Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program, an educational outreach all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So be safe, be well, everyone. We hope to see you all again soon. Masab, I'm gonna give you the last word. Well, um, it means a lot to me uh, to be able to speak for the audience and to be in conversation with Mary. And I apologize. Uh, even though maybe I don't have to because I live in Gaza. Uh, I apologize for the the bad internet connection and my having to be out of the room for a while. Um, that's something that I didn't expect, but you can you have to expect anything in Gaza. Maybe while I'm talking to you, a bomb on the ceiling, on the roof, and then die. <laughs> so anything is, can, can happen very easily. So thank you very much to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Be well. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.